Welcome to Sensemaking. I'm Carla Joy Treadway. I'm an integrated life and business coach, the creator of The Sovereign, and a seasoned wellness practitioner. I believe in investigating the truth. I mean the whole truth. And I bring on sensemakers of all kinds who are brave enough to poke holes in commonly accepted narratives. The world is wild, my friends. And with censorship, cancel culture, and pretend uniformity of opinion, we need more sensemakers who are willing to be who they authentically are, bringing their real-life stories and evidence to the table. Sensemaking will challenge how you feel about a variety of topics from health, politics, spirituality, culture, and more. I want to free you from thinking that you have to go along with the narratives. But mostly, I hope you find yourself in the stories we share here, sparking the idea that, hey, I'm not so alone in my thinking, after all. Hey everybody, welcome to the show. I am so excited for today's podcast. I have been wanting to talk to Mark one-on-one for a very long time. Mark Groves is a human connection specialist. He's a podcaster, he's a speaker. Um, I knew Mark back when he had Create the Love and I listened to his talks on relationships. And then of course, like many of you, we really started listening to Mark during the pandemic. And he just had these sense-making things to say about what was going on. Imagine that, someone actually making sense out there. And we talk about that a little bit in the show. You know, nothing that Mark has said has been incorrect. He's very rooted in reality. These are just some simple truths, but you know, inconvenient truths that people don't like to hear, which can become inflammatory. We talk about the last three years. We talk about Mark's history in the pharmaceutical industry. We talk about relationships and how to mend them. This is an important conversation for anyone, and I hope you get a lot of healing from this conversation. Before we jump into the show, I have to pay the bills. This episode is brought to you by my private membership, The Sovereign. The Sovereign is the only container you need in this wild world. You get group coaching with me for your mindset and your business. So you start creating a bright and prosperous future for yourself, a vision for yourself that takes you away from the internet and onto something that you're passionate about. We have an online wellness studio with practices to fortify your mental health and keep you physically strong. And because this is a wild world, I bring in all kinds of next level experts to talk to you about all things sovereign. We're talking natural wellness, finance, inflation proof investing, Simple things like gardening and growing and old-timey skills like our grandparents used to have. I mean it when I say it. It's the only membership you need for a world gone wild. If you see the show notes, I will include the link to join there. And 
our second sponsor is the wellness company. You guys know if you've been in my space for a while, I'm all about solutions. And I was so excited to jump on the team with the wellness company. They have a board of doctors that are next level, doctors that believe in medical freedom, doctors that have been speaking truth from day one, doctors that aren't afraid of being canceled. Now, they have products, yes, to keep you healthy. They have Dr. Zelenko Z-Stack. They have um, protocols to help detox spike protein out of the body, for uh, things for your mitochondrial health, for your dental health. But most importantly, and this is the wild part about the wellness company, they're building new systems. So right now, if you live in the United States, you can get healthcare through the wellness company. You can speak to a doctor that would rather have you off of pharmaceuticals and onto a healthy living plan. You can get vaccine exemptions. You can get telehealth medicine whenever you need. You can get monthly subscriptions that will cost you way less than what you're paying now for your pharmaceuticals, for your supplements, all of the things. And I can't say too much yet, but they are making their way into Canada, guys. This is incredibly important. Keep your pulse on this one. Canada has all kinds of gatekeepers, of course, but pay attention to what this company is doing. Um, So my husband and I are on the uh, spike supplement as well as the mitochondrial support, and I recently bought the heart health one for my husband because he's a pilot. So the link is in my bio, you can shop at TWC, and you just watch what this company creates. With that, let's get into the show, because I think it's time to talk about more solutions. Let's talk about how we actually become healthy, let's talk about how we fortify our mental health, let's talk about how we heal relationships after what we've been through the last three years. As always, guys, I love to hear feedback from you. If you like what we're doing here, share this episode, share it with your friends. And with that, let's get into the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Carla Joy Treadway, and I have with me Mark Groves today. Hey, Mark. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. I am thrilled. I've been wanting this to happen for a long time. Uh, you don't really need any introduction. You're a human connection specialist. You're a podcaster, but you've been really carrying a lot of people the last three years. My friend, I've never seen someone really say the very perfect thing in the shortest amount of time. You know, those reels are only you know, they got 60 <laughs> seconds. You got to nail it. And you always nail it every single time. It's It's a real gift. <laughs> Well, thanks. I think uh, everyone I grew up with would say that brevity was never a gift for me. Uh, But if I found it in the container of creation that a 60 second allowance gives. Yeah, I mean, that's you have to find a way to to do it quick. I mean, that's uh, to get the message out and to try to do it in a way that doesn't actually activate people. So they shut down to the message. And that's that's actually really challenging work because that's deep personal work, too. It really is. And I knew your work before 2020. Um, I followed you when you were Create the Love and I'd listened to your podcast about relationships. So that that is one thing that you are really, really skilled at. But I think the thing that people have really been leaning, leaning into for the last three years is your 
sense-making is your calm and rational and rooted approach to dissecting the things that have been going on. And you've suffered for it a little bit. You've taken some heat for just telling the truth, trying to bridge the divide. Um, I don't even know where to start, but let's go back to when you decided that you needed to talk about this and, and shift away from the things that you were doing with Create the Love. Yeah, you know, there wasn't like a, I never had suppressed my expression. Like I was actually just doing what I always did, which was talk about the things that were topical and discuss them. I happened to have had sort of the perfect storm of career prior because I was a pharmaceutical rep for 14 years. I worked in that industry. I launched drugs. I took them off the market. I was really successful at it. I studied human behavior from that perspective of like, how do I manipulate uh you know, a physician or whoever to use my drug over another. That's how it sort of started in my early twenties. That was the interest I had in human relating. And I did still do consulting on that type of thing of sales, et cetera. But, um, it's when I had a relationship breakdown in my late twenties that made me want to study romantic relationships. And that made me want to start speaking about the truth of what was real in relationships. Cause I felt like no one was telling the truth. I felt like I'd been lied to my whole life and Granted, if you wake up to the systems and the patterns that are unconscious of how you choose love and how you choose to behave in conflict, et cetera, you're going to wake up to the patterns of everything that you've been sort of taught and you start to question more things. And that led to me as a rep starting to really explore what was I doing? What was I promoting? Uh, I sold a drug for irritable bowel syndrome. Well, when I started to study emotion, I, that was my very first drug I ever sold. But when I started to study emotion, I saw the impact that emotion and conflict and poor conflict resolution had on the nerve, had on inflammation, the nervous system had it on, on the body. And really what I started to see was really the core of, um, the development of autoimmune, the development of disease. And, you know, you can see that in, uh, the large study on adverse childhood experiences, all these types of things lead to just me having a baseline of wanting to understand and wanting to speak about the things that I knew. And I didn't know that when COVID first came that I'd be, you know, my first podcast I did on it was a really good friend of mine, is a good friend of mine, a physician who just talked about COVID. I, I mean, I wasn't like, don't believe it. Don't. It was, I was just wanting to help inform people. I was probably like most people afraid. Mm-hmm. You know, you watch these videos that went viral out of China of people just walking down the street and falling on their face. And then, mm-hmm. you know, as time passed, I started to see, well, that's not actually what happens when people get COVID. So why did those videos go viral? Where did they come from? And it was when the vaccines started to be presented, I read the clinical trials. I was trained in doing that. I was trained in criticizing cl- clinical trials, looking at their weaknesses. And I was having a conversation with a good friend of mine and who was very afraid. And at this point, I was reading the data and I'm like, okay, I'm in my early 40s. I'm healthy. I take care of myself. I have no comorbidities. The risk of this is actually really low for me. I'm going to you know, do what I need to do to be mindful. But as I read the study, I'm like, this doesn't make sense for me. Someone else wants to get it, get it. And when they started to say that the vaccine stopped transmission, I, I was like, wait, but the study isn't even looking at that. That makes no sense. Mm-hmm. They can't say that because as a rep, 
you knew that you could never promote a product for something that it was not indicated in. And an indication is what a product gets when it gets licensing in every country in the world. And so it was licensed. I believe the right wording is something along the lines of the reduction of uh, symptomatic disease. And so if you look at the study, that's what they looked at. That was the primary outcome. There was no outcome looking at reduction of transmission. So I was like, they can't say this is a sterilizing vaccine. They can't promote herd immunity. They're doing it. Maybe it does sterilize. I'll just pay attention to the data. Well, the data showed that that wasn't happening. Quote, unquote, breakthrough cases, which is really just, you got a vaccine that doesn't, is non-sterilizing. And I started to, I was just talking about these things when they promoted it in uh, pregnant women. I was like, there's no data yet. Like that's, that's yeah. an odd thing to promote, especially with the very large potential cost of that. And I just wondered why are they not following the precautionary pr principle in this? <laughs> and and when you're pregnant, yeah. you can't even have lavender oil. I can't do certain types of breath work with a pregnant woman. Like right. you can't do anything pregnant. You can't eat sushi, but experimental injection. They're like, yeah, go for it. And I get two. Yeah, it's that. It's just that simple. Like if we're non-emotional and we just actually look at these from a very binary, should I get it? Should I not? What's the evidence say? What doesn't it say? What does it suggest? What does the side effect profile suggest? What I just started to notice was there was so much emotionality and so much fear that people couldn't even. All I was doing was doing that. Was the I was just having conversations about everything that someone who's not emotionally reactive and in fear, because when you're in fear, your prefrontal cortex shuts down, which is the part of your brain that is in charge of problem solving. We see this in conflict in couples when they're triggered, good luck, right? So I, that's all I saw. And so for me, I was just continuing to have that conversation. But then what I saw was that the media and the government was framing that having the conversation was hesitancy. That being curious was anti-vax. Yeah. And that was hard because the complexity of my own, like, wait, I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm not actually anti-vax, but I'm now having the government and media frame me as being bad. Yeah. Which is really, you know, it, that really is where it started to get heavy psychologically for me. And I think for a lot of people um, is that one group was public health moralized this choice. And it is actually in the moralization of the choice, which also, if you're Canadian, we're actually from, you know, Germany, from England, from the U S they framed it as you're good. If you do this, which infers you're not good. If you don't, mm -hmm. well, humans have the desire for a self image of being good, of course. Uh, and so I would say that that desire of self image of being good was actually weaponized against us. And, and so again, I think so many of us witnessed that, witnessed the turning of people we love on us. And, and so really it just became, I didn't have a choice but to continue to speak up because it was for me in service of myself, really ultimately it was selfish first of like, wait, this, we can't live in a world where you can't discuss things. But that's been a momentum of culture that's been happening for the last about 15 years, we've really been seeing that, especially in academic spaces. So I think we're really coming to a, a head on that. I think that's actually going to collapse because if it doesn't, we're, we're doomed. So, you know, from a culture perspective, we're going to accept 
what is considered the consensus, but it's only consensus because people aren't sharing how they truly feel. It could have been an accident too, but my my tinfoily brain noticed the the real explosion of cancel culture, uh, mm-hmm. like with the Black Lives Matter movement immediately before. And it could have just been a coincidence with, with the timing. But what happened through that movement when cancel culture was really heavily pressing down to shut down language and either you're with us or you're against us, either you buy into this or you, this means this about you. They created a tremendous amount of shame in people. Yes. Um, and there were some things that needed to shift and, and social injustice is real, but they also weaponized the guilt of a lot of people that already cared and treated people really well. So all of a sudden you have this shame culture and then the government yeah. swoops in with an opportunity to redeem your goodness here. If you do this, you are now a good person. And maybe that's a little tinfoily of me to say, but it just seemed mighty convenient, the timing of that. <laughs> well, yeah, I think it's sort of the perfect storm. You know, if it's not deliberate, it's, it, it is occurring, which is when human systems want to be shaped psychologically, what public health uses is what they call nudge tactics. And anyone can look up nudge tactics and learn more about them. And there are ethical guidelines on what you can do in terms of nudge tactics, starting to shame groups or even running on a wedge issue as Justin Trudeau did in the last election. That's If we look at just the baseline of ethics, it's not ethical to make point one group out and make them a certain way and have them villainized in order to win an election. I mean, that's pretty evil. If you actually look at it, it's, it's sociopathic, you know, it's, Politicians throughout history have been willing to do that. I mean, Justin Trudeau is quoted prior, I think in 2019 or 2016, I can't remember, but he's quoted saying, yeah, a politician can run on a wedge issue. Essentially, he would never because the result is you might win, but you end up with a more divided country. Well, he did exactly, but this is sort of the standard protocol for him. Say something and do another and then say you never did that or said that. And that that psychological weaponization of belonging is really what public health used, you know, is to say you're good if you do this and you're bad if you don't. And we've got each other's back. You know, Mm -hmm. these are all language that was intentionally chosen. If you look, the language is consistent across major countries, especially Canada, UK, Australia, New Zealand, you know, and the U S So there clearly was a language choice that was, I guess, you know, agreed upon, or there was a consensus on that. And then it was rolled out. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you also heard them talk about this is an opportunity, an opportunity to reset. That was language used. And, you know, I just don't think that politicians generally choose any of their language by accident. And, you know, when Justin Trudeau went on, Uh, that Quebec uh, television show and said, you know, there's a small group of people and they're often racist, misogynist. What happens is, is you, people of course do not tolerate racism, misogynism, sorry, misogyny. That makes sense. So when you just unconsciously associate a group of people who just might not want to get a product for many reasons, and there are many valid reasons, you now unconsciously make everyone associate those other things, which is exactly what they did psychologically with the convoy. Sure. Were there people who 
who rolled and drove to Ottawa, there were probably a few racists. I think there was one flag flown, uh, a Nazi flag, which was told to get away and leave immediately. Mm. You know, I think every movement, of course, has a small or large subsect of not good people, but that doesn't make the movement itself bad. And if you look at the way they rolled out with the media, the response to uh, the convoy, it's very strategic in order to villainize them, which of course appealed to the goodness of people, as you said, to yep. fear of being seen as racist, anti-Semitic. But ultimately what it did for the government is it really quelled the movement. The movement would have been much bigger. It would have been covered. Because when I saw that happening, I saw people's hope light up. I saw people I knew who I never thought would ever speak or share. I saw them share this excitement about the truckers. And, the, and these are people who went out and got the vaccine too. Mm -hmm. But as soon as it was called a white supremacy rally, uh, I saw the shame and I saw them all get real quiet because tr people trolled them and said, I can't believe you're supporting this. I got people messaging me. I can't believe you're supporting this. And I'm it like, was, Shit, I know five Sikhs who are driving out there. Like, <laughs> you know, it was instant that, and this is what's terrifying to me about culture. It was instant. They just said, uh, hey, the Russians have uh, organized this convoy and it's a bunch of racist white supremacists. The and Russians. Every, and everyone said, okay. <laughs> yeah, and it was a January, whenever I see someone say, it was a January 6th of Canada. I'm like, they, it's so, it's just so ridiculous. Now, granted, I'm sure people had negative experiences. I'm not negating that it was probably awful for horns to be honking all the time. And I don't get it. Mm -hmm. But that actually is the point of protests. Now this federal protest is going on. I don't see any. It's having a massive economic impact on Canada. And Christy Freeland's just quiet about that. Wasn't that the reason they called in the Emergency Act? I mean, that's the thing is if you logically look at the way that all of this went down unemotionally and you just look at the evidence unemotionally, for a lot of people, it creates way too much cognitive dissonance. Like the weight of staying asleep is high, but the cost of actually speaking up is going to require a large capacity for shame. Mm. So they have to be able to be, be with shame, alchemize shame, process shame, repair. Most people don't know how to apologize and repair. So what we're seeing is just this collective a collective group of adolescents, you know, and, and kids who are operating in adult bodies, but emotionally don't know how to disagree with grace, don't know how to hold an oppositional view. And so they shut down their own access to the own part, the parts of themselves that are contradictory. You know, that's the thing is the access point for everybody to be manipulated is that they have never navigated their shadow, you know, yeah. knowing that everyone, as Sam Harris makes this argument, although there's a lot of conflict about Sam Harris, but in his book, Free Will, he makes the argument very well and very beautifully that if we were to trade places with anybody in, let's say, Nazi Germany, we would all become the people we say we never would because if we traded cell for cell and moment for moment that our experiences with theirs, he said, we project free will. We look at a homeless person shooting heroin and we say, just quit heroin. But if we went through what they went through, we'd make the exact choice. And 
I think when we can acknowledge that everyone has the potential to become something bad, that's the way you don't become it. Yeah. And we have a really practically, we have a presence problem. People are so busy. So you're talking about shadow work and deep work. People are not even giving themselves one second to have white space these days. They're multitasking. They're obsessed with their screens. And without presence, there's no intuition. There's no feeling. No one asks questions. Not even what I'm not even talking about the rabbit holes. I'm talking about like one question. So yeah, the media announces that it's a bunch of uh, racist white supremacists. There's no follow-up question. People just take that hook, line, and sinker. And that's because of lack of presence, but also emotionality because they drove this thing with fear. And I know because I, I was that person in the beginning. I was captured by it. Um, and I remember my husband is very non-emotional, very just grounded, non-conspiratorial, just very logic. I remember watching the news and the news was saying 3,000 people a day were dying in India. And I was like, oh, my God, like, this is really scary. And Dan's like, how many people a day normally die in India? And he like, such a good question. 27,000 people a day die in India. And I could not take that information. I just got angry and told him to shut up at that time. And I was like, you don't understand. And that's what most people do now. Yeah. Present them with a following, uh, a follow-up question and they just immediately shut down. And, and this is a real problem. We can no longer have conversations with one another, like, Another inflammatory thing, we don't have to go down this this uh, this rabbit hole, but I'll just say it briefly, is the, the drag queen fight that's going on. Um, so in Tennessee, they're not allowing drag queens to perform in front of children. And a, a good follow-up question is, well, why do they need to perform in front of children? Or why is it only the men that want to perform in front of children? Or I've seen drag shows, and they're great, and they're at bars, there are bars where I'm drinking and in the past, like maybe even doing drugs in my twenties. And it's a, it's a very adult thing. Why are they going into schools? Like, it's just a question. But if you ask the question, it means something about you instead of, can we just find somewhere in the middle? There's no middle anymore. There's no such thing as the middle. And our people like our prime minister did that. They said, if you ask questions again, it's a moral issue now. And now right. it's hor- you're a horrible person if you ask a follow-up question for any issue. Yeah. And what that did to the general public and still does to, to the people who are still emotionally sort of pushing this, uh, this thought process or this narrative is that asking questions potentially was a threat to the solution. Mm-hmm. So the solution, you know, it, it's, um, Matthias Desmond, who talks about how you have all this circulating anxiety that's stirred up by uh, the news and the death counts and the exposure, the, you know, the social media and all the things. So you have all this circulating anxiety, and then the government comes in with a solution to your anxiety. And if someone asks a question that gets in the way of that solution, the mob goes after the people because they uh, especially unconsciously want to do anything to resolve uh, and get to that solution. So that's what happened is there's so much energetic um, momentum mm-hmm. uh, of fear of death 
which was certainly amplified, especially for people under the age of, you know, 60, 50. Um, and, you know, the fact that we couldn't talk about public health didn't make messages about getting exercise, reducing uh, your weight, which the number one comorbidity was age, the number two was weight. And, you know, all of if, taking your vitamin D3, K2, your vitamin C, those are just, again, just simply put, normal, non-conspiratorial, just suggestions that actually deal with on a, on a collective uh, population-based level, public health thinks about things in a population-based level. So there are always costs and benefits, but that was a very low cost intervention to say, mm -hmm. get out and go for a walk. You know, even you see this with the emotional response to the conversation about masks. If you really look at the data, it's not compelling. And that's just simple. I mean, that's, it's, there's no argument about that. It, it's, there's, it's just now we're just beating a dead horse. You know, it's, it's, it's just ridiculous, yep. but there's so much emotion behind it. And I think there's also a shame. Uh, there's the possibility of shame that people don't want to touch that they've been manipulated, that they've been captured because the self-identity is I'd never be the one to fall for that or become you know, as I was saying, become uh, like a Nazi soldier, you know, and I never be the one who becomes the heroin addict. But yet knowing that it's possible is what allows you not to. And, you know, this is, <laughs> I think the last three years has been some of the most transformative <laughs> time. I think Sarah Swain, I, she was saying, I feel like I've gone through like 20 years of personal growth in <laughs> the last year. And I'm like, yeah, it feels like that. And there's so many stages to this, like stage one was the awakening stage is the information hole. And I lived there for a long time, digging and digging and digging this obsessive desire to find the answer and what's really going on mm -hmm. um, and being in the resistance. I was in the resistance for a year. I basically stopped working. I was helping the convoy. I was helping different medical organizations very much in the fight. And then when Ottawa happened and everyone got beaten I kind of released that and just saw these things that I think are happening, they're, they're happening. Now what? And then I went towards solutions. Then I got even louder, kind of creating my own self, my own safe spaces. You know, if the world is feeling unsafe, I'm going to create my own safe space. I'm going to find the others. And that was an amazing shift. I found all these great humans. I built these online communities but now I'm in the next stage. This is an even more challenging one. Honestly, I'm having trouble being in the world. Mm -hmm. Like my safe space is amazing. I feel like untouchable. I have all these solutions. I love my work. This is great. But sometimes I got to go live in the real world. I got to be in contact with other people that have been completely bamboozled by this. And it's especially scary in Canada because People are yeah. still believing things that are so obviously not true. Our media is the most dangerous thing to ever happen to Canada. It's, it's absolute propaganda. And people still believe these lies. And, and this is challenging for me. And I'm encouraging myself to go out in the world to not just be in my own echo chambers. This is the next stage. And it's a, it's a big challenge. Yeah, that's that stage of reemergence, you know, and and knowing what you know, 
how do you re-enter and trust and be with, you know, this is part of the healing process of any fracture is actually extending the olive branch, actually being the one who, you know, steps back into relationship. And, you know, that's, that might be the toughest work because that's the humility, that's the vulnerability, that's the repair, that's all these things that, you know, I had a really good friend who um, got very upset with me uh, in the height of uh, the pandemic and messaged me on Instagram and was very upset. And, you know, we didn't talk for a bit. We sort of like agreed to disagree. And when I saw them in the summer, we actually repaired. We had a conversation about it. And, you know, he asked me, how are you willing to speak out and like risk your business? And I was like, because I don't want, I don't want my business if it means I have to be silent. Like, shouldn't that say something to people that you're willing to lose everything to share the thing, you know? And I, I think what's fascinating is the one side that believes everyone is a conspiracy theorist is actually under the same spell of extreme conspiracy theorists. You know, and I'm saying like the far, you know, the people who obsess about flat earth and things like that. I actually don't care if the earth's flat. That's not a relevant fight for me. I mm-hmm. get to stand on it. It works. <laughs> it doesn't matter to me. I think it's round. That's all I know. And it's just not worth the conversation. But the people who believe everything is a misinformation, uh, everyone else is wrong. Uh, you know, we've got people like Tim Caulfield who's going out making sure but the, the, the irony is that you could look back during the whole pandemic, and this is fact, and I can show where so many things that were fact-checked as wrong, the fact-checkers were actually wrong. Mm-hmm. So many things public health said or the government said were actually misleading and misinformation. Mm-hmm. If we know that, and you can actually sit with the truth of that, which is pretty, it's fucking obvious, Like, I can't even be gentle about it. It's fucking obvious. Mm -hmm. Then you can actually be with the reality that you can't actually trust your media and you can't trust your government, which is very destabilizing. It doesn't mean you can't always not trust them. But as soon as you can't trust them sometimes, you really can't trust them. And when they say that childhood vaccination rates have dropped, that's not just because of unscientific lockdowns. It's because people don't trust public health anymore. You know, I never questioned all the other vaccines. Didn't even think about it. Same. Started studying all of them. And I was like, oh, wow. Just like when I studied cholesterol eight years ago, I was like, holy shit. Anybody who is being prescribed a statin or told you have high cholesterol, just go research cholesterol. Learn about the causes of high cholesterol. Learn about it. Learn about the actual risk benefit of statins. All I'm saying is when you do that, like fat's bad. No, fat got removed from food and they added sugar to food in the 80s and 90s. They gave you base, they gave you margarine, which is filled with awful oils. And all of those things cause the inflammation. You know, high sugar diets, high carb diets, high, you know, seed oils. But that's the thing is once you wake up to one, you you will wake up to all of them. And that's very destabilizing. But the other side of it is you're actually standing on solid ground now. Before it was false. It was not true certainty. It's not true possibility. But now as you reemerge into the world, 
you're actually connected to truth. Mm-hmm. You're connected to self. You know you have a voice. You know you have power. You know that you're not, when push comes to shove, you've got your fucking back. Mm-hmm. That's what everybody wants in relationship. That's yeah. what everybody wants. Most people in relationship are not actually telling the truth. Like we miss each other. I feel like I take you for granted. You take me for granted. Uh, we don't actually talk about anything. We forgot about ourselves. We forgot about each other. We prioritize the kids over us. You know, there's so many truths that we don't acknowledge. And of course we can't call out other truths because we live in a world that's already destabilized where lies are the truth. And Mm -hmm. so if you're going to undo that fucking spell, it's a big spell. But I'm going to tell you, after you're done going through the storm of actually being connected to reality, your coffee tastes better. The air smells better. Sex is better. Conversations are better. Friendships are better. Everything's better. The only thing that's not better is the news. That's so true. I've been uh, talking about safety a lot lately because a lot of people feel unsafe to speak. And you're right. There might be consequences. I mm-hmm. lost my business twice in COVID for, for running my mouth. I lost money, clients, my best friend, everything. There, there are consequences. However, there are. there's so many people, even still, when it's relatively safe now, we're not in a pandemic, and they're still, they're still holding back and they're still scared thinking that they're safe but what that's actually doing is perpetuating this eternal feeling of i am not safe now you are so like i have a friend in my old friend group that's pretended that she was vaccinated and still has never told anyone i would feel so unsafe in those circumstances to be surrounded by people and to always be living a lie Now, there were temporary consequences and increased discomfort from me speaking, but now you're right on on the other side of that is you are now rooted. Now I trust myself. Now I feel strong. And now I have a line community where I actually feel really supported and really safe and, you know, free to tell jokes and make fun of everything. But and and this is why it's important to talk about going out into the world, I think, because what I notice is people are really recoiling from the world. They're terrified. They're traumatized. So they're just, they're hermits now and they're too scared to go out there. And I, I don't know. Do you, I, I think it's important to encourage ourselves in small doses to get out there again. And you're going to find a few things. You're going to find hateful, bigoted people. They're going to be out there. You're going to find super nice, normal people that have no idea that anything is going on. And you're going to find people that agree with you way more than you think, but we're never going to find them if we keep hiding. So how do people find that courage to, to go out and go through that maybe momentary pain or anxiety to go back into the quote real world? Yeah. I mean, it's such a great question. And I first want to acknowledge that for people who didn't speak out early and maybe still haven't, I recognize that not everyone could. Like we're talking about the negotiation you're making is your job, is your belonging, is your family. That's exactly what was weaponized, you know? So it's the reason it's weaponized is because it works. You know, humans have two needs. We have the need to be authentic and we have the need to belong. But if being authentic and expressing yourself threatens your belonging, Belonging will usually win. This is the nature of human development, human evolution. But what happens now, which is 
you know, you're talking about the cost of actual silence. We perceive that we're safer because we're silent. And I, again, want to acknowledge that for some people that's survival-based, that actually is true. And you're making a choice that's discerning, that's saying, I actually need to be silent right now because I got to get through this and I got to find another way to have financial support or wherever. And we see that when spouses, one person is the provider and the other one's not. And if one speaks up, they lose, they actually lose the ability to pay bills and eat food. So that's why a lot of people stay in relationships and that's why there's financial abuse. So just acknowledging that that can exist with the government, that can exist with jobs, look at mandates, get this shot or lose your job. That's not a choice. That's coercion. That's the violation of informed consent. And if you're, if you're angry because you chose to get it because you were given that choice, you should be angry and you should fight back, you know, and, when you now that perceived idea, I'm safe because I'm silent. So let's say that the perceived risk is actually not the actual risk. Like me speaking up for certain cost me the majority of my business, the majority of my income, the company completely crashed, algorithm completely crushed me. Okay. But you, I figured it out because for me, which is true for me, it doesn't have to be true for everybody. But for me to be in integrity with my values and my expression, I will never not do that again. I learned what that, that kept me in a relationship I didn't want to be in when I was young. That made me a doormat. That made me not stand up for myself. I vowed in my late 20s that I would never not talk about the things that matter to me. And I, had, I, I promised that to myself. And when I made that promise, I knew that the cost of not being in integrity with that would be illness. Mm -hmm. Because I think the cost of silencing self, it's not free it's yeah. usually inflammatory in our bodies and we it shows up in our throat it shows up in lots of things so how do you develop courage to step back out in the world well recognize that when you are connected to your own voice the idea that i need other people to love me to be safe you're actually safe with yourself and with your community right like you found other people who think the way you think who value the things you value who you're safe psychologically with Mm -hmm. So if we're surrounding ourselves with people we're not safe psychologically with, like I agree with you, your friend who's told everyone they're vaccinated and they're not, I mean, one, you're out of integrity with the group, you're misleading them. And, you know, for some people that's, I mean, that's, that would feel very deceptive and there'd be a feeling of betrayal. But the other side is she doesn't really get to be herself. Because mm -hmm. if you silence yourself in one thing, you're silencing yourself in others. This is the healing of codependency. Am I willing to be me at the cost of you loving me? I love me. And that's why this has been such a powerful container of growth for me specifically too, is that as I healed codependency relationally, I started to see that it exists. It existed in how I related to the internet, how I related to community. And there's nothing more free than being yourself and being in community. Mm -hmm. and when you celebrate yourself, your boundaries, self-expression, you will naturally celebrate the boundaries and self-expression of another, even if you don't agree with their boundary, even if you don't agree with what they say. And that's the whole conversation about free speech. So how do you get the courage to go back out? There's no simple words, but I think of this. How do you want to live your life? You know, in Bronnie Ware's work, who's a palliative care nurse, she wrote a book called The Five Regrets of the Dying. These were five things that she saw consistent, consistently a lot across people who were going to die. And they were relational. They were emotional. They were about 
putting other people's feelings ahead, not allowing themselves to do what they truly loved. And I think about that a lot. Like if, if, if I told you tomorrow you're going to die, all the things that really matter to you would come forward and you'd, you wouldn't give a fuck about the person who ghosted you, wouldn't give a shit about the person who didn't like your post on Instagram. You wouldn't give a fuck about being silent. You'd probably have a last you know rage letter on your way out of truly expressing what mattered to you. So you are going to die. You just might not know when. And I just think like, what kind of legacy do you want to leave? Like let how you loved be your legacy. Let how you lived be your legacy. And when you liberate yourself in community and conversation, you actually liberate others. So, you know, there's no easy way. You go back out, you learn how to socialize again. But the other side too, which I think is really fascinating, I think every side is guilty of this. I have a friend who was upset recently with a solo episode that I did that was about how I was still processing anger and grief. Now, my podcast is where I get to fucking express myself. So when someone tells me, oh, I didn't like that you did get fucked, first off, like, go create your own podcast. Like, I don't record a podcast so that you can tell me what I should and should not say. But what I said triggered them. They didn't listen to the whole episode. And this is a person I used to work with years ago in pharma. And in the podcast episode, I shared that um, this feeling. And she said, please tell me, Mark, that you're not part of the freedom movement and part of the da-da-da-da-da, like you're not in public health, you don't. And like literally everything I said was fact-checkable, true. I wasn't making any sort of weird claims or anything. Mm -hmm. Um, I said that there was never evidence to reduce transmission in clinical trials. That's actually true. So anyways, I reached out to her because she commented and she inboxed me and she wrote a very condescending inbox message to me breathe think blah 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 and i wrote her back and i said hey i haven't talked to you in a while it's so great to hear from you as you know i've always really valued your opinion and your thoughts and your feelings i'd love to get more clarity on these things so i can hear you out i would really love to be able to hop on a call if you're open to that so she sent me a message on my phone well done not on fucking instagram and we had a conversation And she shared with me that when, during the height of the pandemic, a family lied to her about their kid having been exposed to COVID, said that it hadn't, the kid hadn't, and they were really close with someone who was going through a treatment at the time, and that made them very upset. So these were freedom people. So she associated freedom convoy people with this deception And I was like, oh, I can understand how painful that would have been. But my point of sharing this story is that by having a conversation, I was rehumanized in her experience. She got to remember who I was, that I was a person on the other side, that I cared about people, that what I was doing when we, she actually got to the depths of it, she understood my perspective. She didn't agree with everything. I didn't agree with everything with hers, but we still love each other. Mm. And I think what you said earlier is that You go out in the world and you see that people are just people. And what the last three years has done is we have thought everybody who's against getting the vaccine is bad. And everyone who's pro getting it is a woke, annoying lefty. Mm -hmm. But we're all just people. We're all just people trying to navigate life and avoid the things we're afraid of. Like people who were in the freedom convoy were afraid of losing freedom. People who are in the very pro-vax camp are afraid of dying. And they each think that the other person is getting in the way of what they're afraid of. 
And I think when we can understand that, it feels just a lot. When we rehumanize people, and we've been dehumanized, but the, the healing of dehumanization is one calling out that it exists, but is also rehumanizing the people we dehumanize in response, which I certainly was guilty of for a little bit because I was angry. Yeah. Like, don't tell me what to fucking do. Don't tell me how to feel. I still feel that way, but, you know, that was a long answer. Are there any relationships that you've given up on that you see as just this, this isn't going to go anywhere? No. I mean, the people who uh, are probably really against my perspective, because I'm actually not against anyone's perspective. Like, someone wanted to go get it, go get seven of them. I actually didn't care. I don't care. Same. Um, and I think that was probably one of the most painful things for most people who were pro-choice in this. Which seems so ironic that people are pro-choice about one thing and another, but that's a whole other conversation. But I think what was really painful for the people who were just open to being able to choose is that the love they experienced from other people was conditional. If you don't get this, I can't actually be around you. I now associate you with right-wing conspiratorial thinking, which is just um, following the the ideology programming, you know, and that's why we say that if you're against it, you're a right-wing racist, blah, 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 because mm -hmm. we can instantly dismiss people. But I think what has been the most challenging thing for people who are not now politically on, like I was always more left-leaning and now I find I'm kind of politically homeless. I find myself swimming in the middle, liking some conservative thoughts, liking social programs for the left. And and I think when we look at it from that perspective and we see just that there just needs to be a window of, uh, I guess, more openness and tolerance, you know, and will we get there? Yeah, we have to live it. That's the only way to do it is to be curious. But yeah, everyone who was most oppositional to me outside of just random fucking trolls on the internet, mm -hmm. uh, I still love, you know, and I actually... This might be controversial for some people, but I don't blame people for getting psychologically hijacked by an industrial strength propaganda program. You know, that is the purpose of it. But I won't tolerate people now not being able to at least have a dialogue about it. Mm -hmm. um, and so I just don't talk about that specific subject with some people. Just like, you know, I'm deeply interested in how do you create fulfilling culture, relationships, society. Some people don't give a fuck about that. They're yeah. like, what time's the game? Yeah. You know, or like, and that's fair. That's been true about every subject in human history. And so I just don't talk to some people about some things, but the love is still present. And if they choose to not be in my life because of my beliefs, um, they haven't let me know. So that's probably good. Mm. You know, I there was a lot of pain for me with loved ones that, left. Um, they left because I said, we shouldn't judge people for their medical choices. That's, that's the thing that had me canceled. And I got angry messages and I was told I was a horrible person and that I shouldn't be tolerated. These are people that wow. I've been through births, deaths, divorces, like really been there. So to see how quickly that went to never yeah. have an, I never had an opportunity for conversation 
that stings. Now, I'm I'm a Christian. I do believe in forgiveness. And I do still love these people, but there there is a lot of hurt. And the only way that I've been able to heal from this, at first I was hiding. I was scared to run into them. And I was what I noticed with myself, it was only this year that I realized what was happening. When I'm hiding or avoiding situations because they might be there, energetically, it's putting guilt and shame on me like I did something wrong. Mm. I don't think that apology is coming. And if they ever initiate the conversation, I'm here for it. I don't feel like initiating it. But when I realized I was making myself shrink and what that was actually doing to my psyche, everything changed. And I started going out in public more and more and just like really not caring if I ran into someone walking over and giving them a hug and not being fake nice, like just genuinely being nice, not trying to be best friends again. Everything about my energy started changing. And I just reminded myself that I need to walk around with my head held high, even if they don't understand me, even if the apology never comes. And that's really all I can do right now. I don't I don't feel like initiating that conversation. And maybe that's wrong, but energetically anyways, that, that seems to have served me a lot. Yeah, I, I mean, I think you have to build up the emotional capacity to be able to hold those conversations. Those are not conversations that come, we do when we have, um, our energy is directed towards other things. We, you know, like you're saying, you don't feel like it's the right time and the thing you want to do. We have to honor that you're being discerning about what you desire. And if the time ever comes, you could step towards it. And if it doesn't, you don't. And, you know, for me, uh, that I've used my platform as a way to express, you know, that. And if they happen to see it or read it, they get to, for the people who I've been really close to, there's some I haven't repaired with yet. Um, but I will because I'm going to bring it forward because I want to live my life as an adult. I don't know when it's going to happen, but I'm going to share the pain that I've experienced. And also what I saw is similar to what you did. I did, which is I was afraid that I was being rejected by some of the people I loved most. So I actually distanced myself from them. But in some cases they actually weren't distancing themselves from me. And so I saw that I was creating the thing that I I got to project onto them what I was doing. Mm-hmm. And when I finally realized that, I felt I was like, oh man, I'm them. I'm I, who I, I think they are, but they're not actually doing that. I'm conditionally loving them. And, you know, truly healthy adult relationships can hold difference and they can hear like that was really painful for me. And adults can say, I hear you. I might not agree with your perspective. You know, my mom and dad and I had a conversation, especially my mom recently, and I shared just some of the things that I went through with her not supporting at least just what I was standing up to. I was like, you taught me to fight for these things. And you taught me to fight for things, injustice and people. You know, my mom's an immigrant. She grew up really fighting for that, like for immigrants in Canada. And we always had families from around the world over for dinner to help them find community. And I said to her, like, that just feels so uh, against what you taught me that you're not actually even supportive of witnessing your son's experience of injustice. You know, the, the thing I think is most painful for me 
witnessing in Canada, which I at least had the honor of not being in Canada for a large portion of the time because I left. Mm -hmm. And actually it was leaving that I got to see the contrast of the nervous systems of the collective nervous systems of the places I was in. Like the first place I went was Northern Idaho to Coeur d'Alene. And there was no mass mandate. There was no terrifying. No one was terrified. I saw smiles. People shook my hand. I mean, it was so crazy for my body to experience. I had to come down and people who wanted to wear masks wore them and there was no fucking judging. And then I went back into a place that was immersed with fear and I was like, oh, wow, this is a crazy experience of contrast. Um, but the, I think the most painful part was the running on the election, the wedge issue, because that's where everything amplified so much and the media selectively chose to only tell stories that were about, you know, they presented that stupid mathematical model from David Fisman, you know, Feisman, whatever his name is, uh, saying that unvaccinated or dangerous to vaccinate. It's a mathematical, it was not even done right. I mean, there were so many criticisms of it. You saw no other news outlet in the world presented, but Canadian news outlets presented it. And that's such irresponsible journalism. And the flight mandate to me was actually the most ridiculous because the data didn't support anything Justin Trudeau was saying. Omar Amal Gabra or whatever his name is, he just stood there and was just deceptive. And it was that level of division that was created by the flight mandate that didn't allow humans, Canadians, to have physical liberty to actually be able to leave tyranny. And that, I think, was some of the most traumatizing stuff that the messages being used by Justin Trudeau in his campaign were not actually scientific and no one was calling him fucking out. Yeah. I mean, Aaron O'Toole. Tool is a great last name for him because he didn't do anything. And Canadian media allowed because they were part of the messaging. There was a shared agreement. For sure, the Trusted News Initiative is one. People can look it up. But there was a shared agreement that there would be no criticism of the vaccine, its efficacy at all in the media. That's clear, especially in Canadian media. And so we are the media now. Mm -hmm. And they're terrified of that. Yeah. And I would imagine a lot of Canadians are angry about the flight mandate because by the time it got to court, they just froze it. And then it was called moot. And I think it's still going through an appeal, but... That's where I also lost trust with the judicial system because I'm like, you don't have our back. You don't even, this unscientific, unlawful mandate came in. And when it goes to get challenged a year later, you actually wave it out like that. To me, I was like, <laughs> yeah, I don't, you watch more those, trucks. I don't watch them quite as closely anymore. It's, I don't uh, either now. You, you've hit like two powerful points for me lately. Um, I reached out to you right after you were at the Kid Carson event and you were talking about healing the divide and making sure that we are not adding to the polarization. And I was crying I because I do a lot of memeing. I do a lot of humor. It's been my way of dealing with the trauma of the last three years. And it had me really self-reflective. I'm not going to change the humor because I mm -hmm. find that it helps people. But I have stopped with a lot of the link. I was using really angry language for a while. I, I, needed I did too early, yeah. So I'm, I'm softening there. You're, you're having an effect on me. <laughs> um, but something you just said too about 
where are we making things worse? Where are we becoming the thing that we're so against? Um, You're right. I have removed myself from relationship as well. I am creating my own isolation and this is the next level of healing. And it's really hard for people because we're, we're tired. We've already had to, we had to talk to our bosses and our spouses. And it's been so much the fact, the idea that there might be more work for us to do on this side. A lot of people are like, no, just flat out. No, I'm not doing any more work. But, you know, personally, this is where the healing comes from. You know, when I hire coaches, I I talk to people like Preston Smiles or the people that like point the finger and call you out on your shit. It's not fun, but it's tremendously healing if you're up for it. If you're up. That's the truth. Yeah. You know, it's like, what is the fastest way to your evolution? It's to be pointed to the truth. And usually it's to be pointed of a truth you already know about you just have an adaptive strategy to ignore you know and that's why all the best teachers just say that's the thing you already know about go do it and when we actually start i mean it's really just reawakens intuition it reawakens knowing you know and i remember asking sherry salata a friend of mine who used to be the executive producer of oprah for like 20 years or 30 years and i said to her like you got fucking eckhart on speed dial and you got all the people What's the like one thing that they all sort of say or share that you see that is powerful? And she said, you know, it's that you don't need them. And, and then she was like, actually, no, let me change that. You need them to remind you that, that you don't. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, wow, that's so powerful. Like, that's truly the work. You know, I have a therapist, I have a coach, I have a mentor. And what they all do is they point to truth. So I'm, I don't know how to hold yet. Um, but my commitment to the work is to always step into the truths I know. Because to live something that you know is not good or harmful and pretend it's not is painful. And to be in integrity with your own evolution and your potential is to actually absorb and alchemize the knowledge that comes through the experiences you have. And that's how knowledge becomes wisdom. Because you can know lots of shit and live nothing, none of it. Mm-hmm. And, and that's where you see people teach things, but their life is in fucking shambles. And, mm-hmm. and that's not to say that people's lives can't be in shambles, but the things at least they teach, they should live. You know, and being able to heal that divide. I mean, I never want people to think that you can't have sacred rage. You know, I think rage is one of the most powerful emotions. I mean, look at movements like Me Too, Black Lives Matter, right? They're restorative. But in far extremes, they're also destructive, you know? And so sacred rage is restorative. It's constructive. It repairs. Um, but it, it doesn't, sometimes you can't be gentle about it. And the other side is, you know, as you're so gifted in is levity. Levity is an access point for people to listen. You know, when someone's learning about their relationships or their life, if you can bring humor into the learning, that's why transformative comedy is so powerful. You hear someone like Ricky Gervais or Dave Chappelle or Chris Rock or whoever, you know, Louis C.K., you hear these brilliant comedians teach life lessons through humor. And, you know, I think when, when we look at using language that creates division too, you know, here's the thing is that the people who need to hear 
certain messages are not going to listen to people who name call. They're not mm-hmm. going to listen to people who write and speak from a place of, di- dis- of nervous system dysregulation themselves. And I remember when I recorded a video and I was like pissed <laughs> and activated my now wife, fiance at the time, she was like, no one's going to listen to you. Mm-hmm. She's really- like, you're doing exactly what you're telling them. Like you're writing and speaking from a place that is divisive in its mm-hmm. energetic. And I was like, shit, like is one of those truths that just hits you, you know, which is why I'm in relationship with her because she didn't care about my feelings in that moment. And she shouldn't have because she cared about my evolution first. Mm. And that has been a work in progress because there are times that I am angry, you know, like I am angry about the travel mandate, not one of my core principles is fairness and justice. Mm. And those have been completely violated in the last three years. Um, being discourse, dialogue, repair. These have been the mission of my work, completely violated by every aspect, every system and institution and media outlet is supposed to be the place that models that academic institutions too. Thrown out the fucking window. Look at question period in Canada. It's just bullshit period. I've never heard a question answered. It is spew off marketing messages. That's all they do. And, you know, this is the state of our democracy. It's not a democracy anymore. Maybe it never was, you know, that's the naive part of it. But I've never been politically active, and now I'm politically active. Thank you, Sarah Swain. Same. Right. I went to the parliament school. But, you know, there's a lot of people that have checked out for this conversation, either because they disagree or they got it, and they're like, well, I don't want to think about it anymore. And the the problem with that is it's going to happen again. If they get away with this, they're going to do it again. And it's so unfortunate because it just could have been handled so much different. I I would actually be, this. people may disagree, I'd actually be able to forgive if public health and our leaders actually said, we fucked up. Here's where we made a mistake. Here's what we're going to do different next time. I'm sorry. There are people that died. You know, I just did a podcast with Invisible Fences. People still think this is safe because people like her were permanently disabled and they refuse to, like the doctors acknowledge it, but the government of Canada refuses to acknowledge it and CBC refuses to cover it. And there's many, many people like that. So this is terrifying to me that there's just so few people willing to look at the truth. And this is where the balance comes for me. My sacred rage is I need to maintain my strong back, but like Brennan yeah. Brown, my soft front. Um, I'm trying to soften my edges because I don't want to harden. But, and this is why I continue with humor because the for the people that are scared and in that weakened stage, I'm like, I need to lift y'all up. I need to remind you what a badass you are. Agreed. You got to build up your strong back and then you, you have your softness. Let's, let's build you up again. I mean, the love, oh, sorry, go on. Oh, just wondering if you think, if you think this is going to happen again. I mean, I don't think anyone's going to tolerate something like a lockdown collectively. I don't think, even though, you know, I actually thought a lot of things 
uh, where I thought, not in Canada, not in Canada, and then certainly in Canada, in Canada. A lot of the hopes I had about, or the misconceptions I had about Canada um, were, you know, I have a lot of grief about that, the identity of the country I grew up in, its principles, its values. Um, I think Canada and places like Australia and New Zealand, I think they actually have probably the most potential of it happening again. You know, the collective identity or, or country perception of Canada is that we apologize for everything. That's sort of a joke, right? Sorry, you know, and, and I hear my American friends saying that joke a lot. And I also used to find myself doing it a lot. What that's indicative of is a really large fear of conflict. Um, Canada as a country has been very much that doesn't get into controversial conversations. I think uh, we also, so we're codependent as a country and that makes us really susceptible to manipulation. Um, much like people who are codependent are more susceptible to being drawn in by abusers. This has been, if you look at all of the data on like the characteristics of an abusive relationship, uh, it's been eerily similar. So because countries like Australia and New Zealand, probably New Zealand more and Canada more, there is such an identity of like, we're good people and we love everybody and we do anything. Those are all really shadowy virtue uh, self-perceptions. And when I, when I say that, it's like, when you look at the research on virtuosity, um, people who identify as being good and wanting to be seen as good in research are more likely to lie in studies. Mm -hmm. And there's another study or point of research by a guy named Robert Valorand, which looks at obsessive passions versus harmonious passions. And his research is looking at things like people who are obsessed about the environment versus harmonious, which like they have, a, the word kind of speaks for itself or more, not obsessed about it. You know, people who are obsessed about exercise, like Camus, usually no offense if you are one, everybody, but if you're like an Ironman triathlete or a, a ultra marathon runner, like you just often see that obsessive pattern, not always, but often. And if they miss a workout in the research, it's shown that they don't get the perceived benefit because they're so obsessed about it. Um, and so it shows you how a passion can actually become harmful. And in the research on, uh, on environment, people who are more obsessed with the environment are less likely to recycle and more likely to commit a terrorist act. So you have this like this presenting as virtuous. The internet has really amplified this. We call it virtue signaling, right? And there's jokes about things like people who have a Ukrainian flag in their profile or something like that, is that they're presenting as wanting people to see that they support these things. That as a human characteristic is actually really beautiful that we want to support things that are good, but it's also actually the gateway to manipulation because we don't want to be seen as bad. And we talked about that earlier about the vaccine and vaccine hesitancy and getting it or not. And so you have that, which is currently in the height of its times with social media, which is this really needing to be seen as good. And that is generally more on the left. And that's why you see the far left get so captivated by this weaponization of virtue. And then you also have the presenting as victimized. This is again, a, a fascinating subject to explore because if you present as a victim outwardly, 
And this is not negating anyone's experience of being a victim. But if you, let's say two people write a GoFundMe in one story, there's no expression or sharing about trauma. And in another one, there is. The people who share about trauma are more likely to get more money. So when someone presents both as virtuous and as a victim, they're given more high social status. So there's rewards to doing these things. Again, not negating authentic versions of this. But what's happened is, is because people have seen that they can source power from them, they are now masquerading as virtuous, but really it's toxicity. And this is what you see a narcissist do. This is what you see um, manipulative people do. This is what you see abusers do. This is what we've seen the government do. So when people understand our own proneness to it, I mean, I think Canada is really prone to that. Because mm-hmm. Canada hasn't woken up to the truth of what Canada is actually capable of. <clears throat> There's a certain part of our population that's like, that was pretty fucked up what they did in Ottawa. And then there's a whole other part that that's like, that's fucking amazing. I'm so happy they bootstomped them and did those things. That was a January 6th. You know, it's the stories people will tell themselves in order to maintain the perception of good. I mean, isn't that the history of every tyrannical government is doing it in the face of well-being? Mm-hmm. That's the thing is if we could just sit with that truth and not say, well, that's totally true about Canada. But if we could just sit with the truth of history and then logically, factually move through what's occurred, then I, you know, I think then we have the possibility of being liberated from the pattern. But I don't know. We have to elevate, you know, I think of things like Rebel News they're they're too loud about some things their name itself is off-putting you know someone who's a cbc or ctv or global listener is not listening to rebel news you know and and that's the problem and now you have bill c16 that is it 16 or 11 i can't remember but the one about censorship 11 and then there's three more that are way scarier coming after yeah so oh yeah 16 was the one about um a speech, but yeah, 11. So you have potential censorship, you know, like I'm not living in Canada anymore. Like sold my house and moving because mm-hmm. right now with the liberal government in power, it just doesn't feel psychologically safe for me, especially as a creator. Um, especially because people are actually okay with the censorship of speech. You know, I think the U S at least has, if the U S fights all this stuff in court, which they are doing, and they're actually getting their time, the Canada will have to follow. Yep. And if the deception is made clear, I don't know if anyone listening has read anything about the Virality Project, but that was a partnership of the U.S. government with Stanford. And in the Twitter files, this came out. So anyone can go fact check this. It's great. You know, I'm, this is Drew. They censored often truthful information about COVID and the vaccine that may create vaccine hesitancy. So Stanford decided what messages were and were not okay, even if they were true. And so what we see is that the government is infantilizing its citizens saying, we don't actually trust that you can hold the truth of information that might make you authentically hesitant to take a product which to me, that is the violation of informed consent. So they censored information that was true. The Virality Project is really um, terrifyingly interesting and it sends you down a whole rabbit hole. 
I can send you stuff on it that you can link out in the show notes. Yes, please. Yeah. Everything that happened with the Twitter files was just blowing my mind, but what's interesting on, on this side of things, if there is a side is, you know, people say, well, will the truth ever come out? I'm like, the truth is out. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Right. Right. Whether or not it matters. That's a great point. I think where we end up at is a place where we really just need to strengthen ourselves because we can't wait for the world to change because it's possible that there isn't this great forthcoming of information that the, this unveiling of the truth, this big apology. Um, my hope is that things become less polarizing and we're able to get more wise humans in the middle. It also might not happen. They're, they're going to rewrite history with this thing and people are going to believe lies and we're going to have to be okay regardless. Yeah. You know, I think about that a lot of, you know, you witnessed Justin Trudeau recently saying, I never forced anyone. I used, I mean, his language is so um, dismissive. And I can understand probably most people in Canada who experienced that uh, and and experienced the mandates, et cetera, whether they're vaccinated or not. That is just so dismissive. And it's not acknowledging the pain and the truth of his actual behavior, which is again, sort of classic of an abuser, a narcissist. Uh, And I hate to use that word, but it's just so, it's so accurate for what we've experienced. And, you know, this has been a collective trauma. I mean, that when you can acknowledge that it's been a collective trauma, then we can be with the reality of it, that we have things that we need to heal for ourselves. And, you know, as you mentioned earlier, like moving back into the world is an act of we have to trust ourselves, but we also have to dip our toe in. You can't fully immerse yourself. I mean, the events that are coming up, I think are great. Like Kit Carson, I think has an, he has an event at the end of May, which um, I'm excited for. It's the first time I've spoken in Canada in three years. Oh, you're going to be in person. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Ideally. It's like, but again, like who knows if the U S border mandate will lift or not. And I have a plane. I'll come get you. <laughs> it's sweet. Perfect. I'm in. Um, yeah, it's been a, it, I think that part has been, I mean, all of it has been really hard. Yeah. It's all been really hard and doing the work to get back to healing is, is actually, I think the hardest work, you know, humans have, we have a hard time repairing. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that is the work that's healing. Too many of us are trying to fix the world or the world problems and things that are just out of our control and putting all our thinking on that. When you're feeling anxiety about the world, you have to focus on what's under your control, which ultimately is just yourself, your thinking, your central nervous system. If you don't have that under control, you can't tackle your relationship. You can't tackle your small town, <laughs> like nothing can be done without self-regulation. And, and that's what I hear uh, from your work a ton. You know, you can't approach these conversations from an activated place. So that really is the most important work. If we actually want to wake people up, we can't be yelling at them. We can't be calling them names. If we actually desire that change, you have to approach people in a way that they're able to listen well, yeah, and to, to be of, uh, to even open the opportunity for connection again, like it might not be time for some people and that's totally fair, 
what really helped me was actually just understanding the psychological process of propaganda and how it captures us. Cause then I had compassion for the people who were captured, you know, mm -hmm. like I had compassion for my friend who was super reactive. I just wrote a message that was nice. Like, Hey, I'd love to be more curious about your perspective. I could tell you early on, I wasn't curious about many people's perspective <laughs> when they were milit, you know, being militant about it and dehumanizing me. Um, but it gave me a much broader understanding of humanity, history, human behavior. Like I never thought I would, like I was like, how are humans capable of what occurred in World War II or the genocides that continue to happen throughout human history? And I'm like, oh yeah. And you know, the thing that kind of terrifies me in history looking back as you were speaking is the sort of sweeping under the rug, the fact that, you know, we're probably going to call a lot of the long-term side effects long COVID, mm -hmm. you know? And the other side of that too is that like, I don't know how a regular person, although this wasn't pointed out, and when I say regular person, I don't mean that condescendingly, but I mean someone who maybe doesn't know about data, but I don't know how the average person, when the data of the provincial data that was available was showing that the people who were vaccinated per 100,000, so you can compare across groups, because of course people go, that's a baseline fallacy. There's way more people who are vaccinated. So that's why they put them all across a baseline denominator of 100,000. So the per 100,000 people who were hospitalized and dying from COVID was starting to actually um, be higher per 100,000 in the vaccinated and um, boosted groups. As soon as that data started to really present itself, all of a sudden the data wasn't available anymore. That's right. How can we not look at that and go, well, that stinks. Like mm -hmm. if it really works and it aligns with what they're saying, then why don't they present the data? And I mean, that causes too much dissonance for people. It's easier just to pretend that that's not a big deal. But I'd say if it's not a big deal, then release it, release the data. Yep. But I think we all know the real answer as to that. And that's not a conspiracy. That's like literally there'd be transparency as there was news flashes and charts and death counts when they needed the fear. But now when the truth is needed, those things aren't available. And I think those are the things that we need to fight to bring out because that type of data is just so obviously it fractures your whole mind if you're under the spell. And that's what we need to do is speaking the truth releases people from the spell. And the more of us speak the truth, the more other people will speak up because the risk of speaking up goes down when other people are taking the risk too. Mm -hmm. And that's why if we're feeling the call, now's the time. And you yeah. don't have to speak about vaccination. You could have been vaccinated. You could be like, lockdowns were bullshit. School closures were bullshit. Why were there no debates? And there's no data. Mass mandates, not sure I agree with those, right? Like that's what's important now. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's safe to do that now. Yeah. Most part, right? Like I hear people say like, we're still talking about this. I'm like, oh yeah, because there hasn't been accountability yet. Yeah. Gosh, please say Justin Trudeau steps down. <laughs> I'm laughing because there's wow. no talking to that man. There's no debating that man. There's no getting rid of him. No matter how many times he gets caught in corruption, I have a solution. It's humor and it's the only way we can deal with him. Andrea, Andre and I figured it out. So we determined that farts in a jar is a thing, that it actually works. If you do fart in a jar, there is something there. <laughs> 
So we thought of Wait, all you can actually fart in a jar. Apparently that's a it. thing and contain it. So mm-hmm. if we all mail one to Justin Trudeau at the same time, it'll arrive in Ottawa. His team will get it. And you're like, what is this? Is it, is it anthrax or no, <laughs> sir, it's so much worse. One million <laughs> Canadian <laughs> Well, when you think about it, I would imagine that the data on how many Canadians got vaccinated is exaggerated. Mm-hmm. Like it just makes sense. They lied about a lot of things. They probably lied about that. But even not lying, it was about, I think, 80% got the primary series, something like that. So, you know, 80% of 40 million, that means there's 8 million people, right? Four times two. Yeah. There's 8 million people who are unvaccinated. There's 8 million people who couldn't fly. There's 8 million people who have a voice. There's 8 million. That's a lot of people. That's enough people because the people who are speaking so pro and so um, against dialogue are very small. They're just the loudest. There's yeah. probably three, four hundred thousand who are really loud. But if eight million, even five, even four speak up, uh, you now they have something to deal with because that will actually shift the majority. Mm-hmm. So that's why it's so important. Well, my friend, I want to make sure I respect your time here. Um, One last question. Let me make sure I get the right question. Are you different now? Are you a a different human after the last three years? Yeah, I mean, it's hard not to become different. Um, I think what's different about me now is that... um, I can hold anger on a much higher level. Um, I can hold rage without being destructive. I can hold grief. Um, I know who I am now when put against something that I really stand for. And I know that I'm willing to stand against and I know that I'm willing to lose things. Um, So I have a lot more trust in myself. Um, I have more compassion for difference by so much more. Um, everything about me has been deepened and and deepened in the space that like I've gotten to know my shadow more. I've gotten to know darkness. I've gotten to know pain. I've gotten to know loss on such a deeper level. I've gotten to know um, the death of my naivety. Uh, yeah, I've gotten to be able to be with grief and and discover the richness of it, and and I think that's made me uh, a much greater partner, uh, a much greater friend. It's really deepened my work and deepened me. Yeah. How about you? That's, I'm feeling everything except for the compassion for differences. That's what I'm working on right now. It's it's at the forefront of my psyche, and I'm actively working because I, I see it. I see it in myself. So I'm trying to soften that part. Well, you don't want to bypass it. It's just like, how do you take the rage that is the, the not, let's say not soft part. Mm-hmm. And how do you make it constructive? Like, how yeah. do you give it a voice in a way that's constructive? Cause I think a lot of the times we have feelings like we're talking about and we think it's like not healthy or progressive or, or conscious or whatever the, shame we use on ourselves 
but there's actually incredible brilliance in emotion. And so I would ask like, what is my rage or my lack of compassion asking of me? How do I develop more compassion for myself? You know, those types of questions, which I know you're constantly asking. So it's great. Yeah. But you're right. I feel much stronger. <laughs> I feel very, very strong. In fact, there was a moment, I think it was last summer, Sarah Swain and I were um, in a hotel room in Calgary, way up high. And some of the conspiracy folks were talking about some apocalyptic doomsday happening. It was in September, I think. And I was telling her about this. I'm like, I'm seeing this crazy stuff on the internet saying that something big's going to happen. And we're on the top floor of the hotel. And all of a sudden, the fire alarm goes off. <laughs> and we both look at each other and we run to the window. But we both had this, like, we were, like, waiting for a plane to crash or an asteroid. And I think we both had this feeling, like, it's go time and we're going to be okay. <laughs> we got this. <laughs> If I was in an apocalypse, being with you and Sarah would be a good survival strategy, I think. I can get us a moose and build a wigwam. <laughs> I got good apocalypse skills. I'm in, I'm in. <laughs> well, Mark, thank you so much for, for coming on the show. I, I just love listening to you and you definitely help me soften the edges. Um, if people want to, if they... I'm sure everyone already is familiar with your space, but if they want to read more of your materials or hear you speak, where do they go? Yeah, so I have a Substack account that I write on, which is just substack.markroves.com, I believe. And then um, I have a podcast, Mark Groves Podcast, um, and I have Create the Love, which is all my relational stuff, and it's Mark Groves, which is where I kind of talk about everything. It's not limited to anything, so you'll find more of the conversation. I like to post a lot of studies. I like to post data that's coming out. Um, and yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you for trusting me with your audience that I know you've built a lot of love and community with. It means a lot. Thank you. And hopefully I see you in Vancouver. I hope so. I think you will. <laughs> okay, my friend. Um, we'll have to have you back sometime. Thanks again for your time today. Thanks for having me. Wow, guys, what an episode. I could talk to Mark all day long. It's pretty funny. When you find people that are on the same page, they just become soul family right away. <laughs> it, it's not about your political stance. It's not about your religion or your skin color. It's that you're connected on your values. You're connected on the fact that you're awake to the world around you, that you're awake to these common sense principles. The world has lost its mind, y'all. So it's so refreshing to find other humans that are real sense makers. <laughs> Reasonable conversations with facts that matter. Imagine that. If you like today's episode, uh, please consider sharing this to your Instagram stories. Tag us, tag Mark, tag me. We'll make sure that uh, we share it to our stories as well. We really appreciate you guys listening to this. Topics like forgiveness and relationship mending are challenging. It's difficult. It's a whole other level of human growth and expansion. Yes, some terrible things have been done to us. But if we can even acknowledge the tiniest little role that we play in our own lives, roles that we play even in our 
past hurts. That is what strengthens us. That is what allows us to evolve and move forward and get stronger. So I hope you got a lot from this conversation. Please consider hitting the subscribe button. It helps us a lot. And I love to hear from you guys. Send me an email. Send me a message on Instagram. Any podcast suggestions would be amazing. And with that, I'll see you guys next time. Thanks for listening to the show.